As you probably suspected, I love films. I also, ironically enough, love cinema. At the core of all conflict are stories, right? And stories are the core of all films. Filmmakers tell stories, and increasingly, individuals have the power through various social media channels to mold and shape their own stories and then to project those visions onto the world. Welcome to the show! This is episode 8 of Earbud You. Shalin Sarkar is a creative whirlwind. She is a painter, writer, director, and producer of such films as Manesh, Paternoster, and many, many others. Based out of South Africa, Shalin is an incredible person who has created a vision of life, of justice, and has stepped out of her comfort zone repeatedly. I was excited to talk to her because I believe in the creative process, and I also believe in the project that encompasses the big vision. When we talk about conflicts, we talk about culture, identity, outlook, frames, and meanings. Now, it gets tricky when my identity rubs up against your identity. In film, those types of frictions, that, that rubbing up of identities and that buttressing of heads, controls and directs the creative process. However, sometimes it's a little too much, and then going to the balcony can help. When we take a break in a conflict and step back, we do more than just breathe in and out to open up the capillaries in our brains. We also take the time to think and determine what we need, how important what we need is, and to really consider what the other party needs. Now this becomes a difficult thing because, well, sometimes we don't care about the other party, right? We don't care about their role in the conflict, and we really don't care about the outcome that they want. And this can create a larger struggle. And now, a bit of the usual stuff. You can connect with Earbud U on Twitter, at Earbud underscore U. You can also check us out on Instagram. We tweet and post images on both of those social platforms underneath the hashtag, be part of the show. We're part of our parent company, Human Services Consulting and Training, based out of Endicott, New York. So, of course, go over and check out the HSCT website at www.hsconsultingandtraining, all one word, dot com. Now, check out Shalin Surkar and her independent film work via her film company, Shalia Films, at www.chalia.co.za. That's www.chalia.co.za. She's on Facebook, and you can find her company, Shalia Films, there, and connect with her on Twitter as well. Look, really, you need to connect with this woman um, for all of your producing, writing, and directing interests and needs. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to Earbud You. Get your knowledge on through your earbuds. Thank you all for listening today. This is episode eight. Our special guest for our show today is Shalin Sirkar, internationally known independent filmmaker, painter, and blogger. Shalin has used her talents and skills in a wide variety of areas to advocate for human rights, to advocate against racism and xenophobia, and has a compelling personal story based upon growing based on growing up in South Africa. Uh, she's a great person that we connected with and we followed uh, very actively through Twitter um, and through Human Services Consulting and Training, our parent company. We are very excited about the work that she does in the independent film area, and we love to help support um, female independent filmmakers. Welcome to Earbud You, Shalin. How are you doing this morning? Hi. Um, I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you very much for that really nice uh, introduction. Yeah. So, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, not a problem. <laughs> and it's really nice to know that you know you are supporting independent female filmmakers. That's that's really nice to hear. Well, absolutely. You know, I think I I personally I love film. I love cinema. I get very very excited about um, film and cinema. Uh, one of my passions is you know watching film. I love watching film. I was actually going through my basement just recently and doing some cleaning, and I found all my old DVDs. And you know, my my wife has now accused me of hoarding because <laughs> I won't. I, I refuse to throw a DVD away, but I just, I just, I can't throw away my original copy of um, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. I just, I can't throw that away. <laughs> like I have to keep that. No, so. Of course. 
that's sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, how would I? Why would I throw that away? So, uh, so yeah, I love film. I love all kinds of films, even mainstream Hollywood films, all the way to to independent films, and particularly the films of um, of female independent filmmakers, because I think they have such a and, and minority independent filmmakers. Um, I think they cover and they come at subject matter with such a different lens and such an inverted lens, and I think that's a valuable and creative story to be told, um, not just in the United States but throughout the world. Okay. So let's let's start off with sort of having you talk about yourself. What is it that you do exactly? <laughs> so I call myself an independent filmmaker, and basically what I what I do is I tell stories. Um, and what I want to do is um, uh, is tell stories that I think are important that need to be told. That are stories uh, of real of people in real life uh, that we don't really see because it's so we are so used to 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 these stories. It's such a big part of our lives. And, and so that, that's what I would say I do. I want to bring to the surface um, uh, things about ourselves as human beings that we don't really notice. So, um, so I call myself an independent filmmaker because I've worked, um, I've worked extensively in film. And previously what I did uh, is I worked in the development process as a producer and a script consultant and I worked with other international co-productions before before I began writing my own script and and now I'm working as a director and I'm currently writing and directing and producing stories which I've developed so I've also I also uh, work as a consultant and so I I really enjoy helping people put together a film excellent awesome that's that is a very eclectic sort of mix there um, and I know Film is a you know and film is a collaborative medium. Um, I have a background in printmaking and drawing, which I've sometimes talked about with other guests on our show. And uh, one of the functions of being a printmaker is being collaborative. So if you want to run a giant printmaking studio, say in the high desert of New Mexico, which is where a big printmaking studio is in the United States, you're going to want to get several people on board to help you churn out giant fine art prints that are going to be of high quality. So that collaborative process has to happen, and I was educated in that collaborative process. So it sounds like you wear a lot of hats. Talk us through the process of wearing those hats, and how does that work in bringing together a film or bringing together a project? Okay, so in, well, those hats, I would call them that of the writer, the producer, and director. And, um, well, for me, um, you know, a lot of people speak, say, you know, that it's better just to, to be a director or to write and direct and not to produce as well. But, but for me, I, I think that it's really important for uh, a writer, a director to actually produce oneself because nobody is really going to drive your project in the way and with the same passion uh, that, that, that you have. And that way you always have your hands on it. That doesn't mean you're actively uh, producing, but you're actually, you know, uh, supporting your work in, in the way that you expect um, your, your, your producers to support you. So I, I think that's an important thing. Um, so what I mean, well, what does that mean? That means that um, if, I wanna, if I want to get my story told, I, I write I write my own work and so and I need to produce it as well. So that means I go out and find other producers. I own my project and I find co-producers. I I initiate the conversations around financing the project. I initiate the conversations about uh, bringing in a relevant creative crew like other writers or um, the cinematographer um, around the casting, etc. So I think that I, I wear more than one hat in that respect. Um, as a consultant, what I've done is I've worked uh, uh, for other people and for projects which I've been a co-producer on as a, as a script consultant, as well as I've advised uh, various um, uh, other producers uh, in an international context about what it's like to shoot in South Africa or what it's like to shoot in Germany or how one goes about accessing funds in South Africa or how one goes about accessing funds in Europe and which funds are available and how you could go about packaging your finance for your film. And so um, yeah, I, I'm busy doing all these these type of things. Awesome. Yeah. You, you, well, that op that opens up a question that you know didn't didn't necessarily make my list, but it kind of dovetails with what we're talking about here. Um, 
what is the, what are the differences between sort of filmmaking and shooting in South Africa versus Germany? What are some what are some structural differences? What are some financing differences? What are some just cultural differences that you sort of have to walk maybe your client through as a consultant or even that you have to walk through as a person trying to get a project up off the ground? Uh, well, the difference, the major difference between Germany uh, or even Europe and South Africa, but especially Germany, is that there's a lot more support here from, um, financially mm-hmm. as well as for the author. Uh, for the artist, there's a really a real understanding about uh, what it is like for an artist to be um, to be coming out and to be to be projecting one's style and to, um, to to tell one's story in one's own way. So, I think one of the questions that you you had posed to me was. Uh, uh, an artist as an entrepreneur, and mm-hmm. that re- is really supported in Germany. Whereas I think in South Africa, you uh, you know there's still there's still a lot of struggle around that. I think artists really find it difficult uh, to be an entrepreneur. And to go back to answering your question, the reason for that is because of the support that you have here in Germany, which you don't have in South Africa. So in South Africa, you have one um, national institution called the National. Film and Video Foundation, which aims to support young filmmakers. They are currently uh, in development with one of my projects. But uh, the kind of support I receive in South Africa is very limited compared to the kind of support I have here. So if a filmmaker, an American filmmaker, had to come to me and say to me, okay, you know, where would you suggest I co-produce? Would you suggest I co-produce with Germany or South Africa and why? My answer would be, well, well, Germany has various funds. The funds, they have a national fund. They have a fund in each of the uh, of the states. Not every state has a fund, but they have funds in different states. The money, though, has to be spent here. So you would get the money here and you would shoot here or you'd use crew from here or you'd use equipment from here or you would use post-production um, here. And so, you know... In South Africa, you have uh, you have like your tax rebates, which are favoring international filmmakers who want to shoot in South Africa, and you have the National Film and Video Foundation. So it's not very much, to be honest. You have other uh, another um, institution, uh, which is called the IDC, which is basically a bank that funds uh, filmmakers as well, and they do various other things. But um, filmmaking, independent filmmaking, is still very young in South Africa. So I think they've got like a really long way to go before they can really understand what it's like to support um, filmmakers. What they do have, what is really strong in South Africa is if you're a commercial filmmaker or if you go, if you're a filmmaker who's got your script and you've got your story and you've got your creative elements or your crew and your cast um, and you are not your crew, sorry, just your cast, but you want to go to South Africa and use South Africa as a location and use the crew there and use equipment there, then South Africa is really top notch in that in that way, and um, they offer all the services in a in a really expert uh, way. And then, uh, so you know, there's a the, I would say that uh, artists are not as supported in South Africa as they are in Germany, but yet, but you know, more commercial ventures are more supported in South Africa, and they are to a great extent supported here in Germany too, in Berlin especially. And uh, the, in terms of the cultural differences. Um, there are huge cultural differences, you know, and I hear this when I speak to people who've, who shot in South Africa, uh, who are German or, or vice versa. So there is a lot more, um, um, how can I put it? There's just a different cultural outlook. Uh, what, what am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> just, just say, just, you know, just, just, just sort of. I, I don't want to tell you to finesse it, but just sort of say say what you're thinking there. I, I don't know where you're going, but just say what you're thinking there. Yeah, well, what I want to, want to say is like the, the style of the people are different in South Africa versus Germany. Thank so you. if you if you're German, you're coming to South Africa and you want to shoot there, uh, and you you bring your own style and you bring your own way, and you have these expectations from your supporting crew in South Africa, then you have clashes, and very often you have this, and you hear of these stories. And it's not necessarily the case with Americans going to shoot in South Africa, uh, because somehow I don't know it's the Anglophile versus the uh, the continental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 
So. Yeah. Well, and the model you're describing in some ways is similar to the model that I see with independent filmmaking here in America. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's different because we over here in America didn't nationalize our film companies. You know, we we never did that, and so you got a lot of domestic film companies that are that are global brands. You know, um, particularly at the commercial level. But then you have and the, and they all crowd out the independent filmmakers, and then you have the independent filmmakers who are struggling just to, like you say, get a tax rebate from a particular state, like and a tax rebate in the state of Louisiana to shoot something is going to be different than a tax rebate in the state of Mississippi, which is right across the border, you know, or a tax rebate in the state of New York is going to be different than a tax rebate in the state of Montana. Um, but if you're an independent filmmaker in Montana, that could be a huge thing to sort of to have to overcome. Because you're right, you have to get the financing first. So that model, in that way, it's similar. You have to get the financing. You have to get the producer. You have to get the crew. You have to get all these things lined up before you can get, get the money. It's the sort of the entrepreneurial it's an invert of the entrepreneurial chicken and egg thing, <laughs> you know. So you got to you got to get the money to make the money, you know. But you don't have any money, so how do you go out there and get the money? And I, I'm assuming it's a similar thing when you're working in Germany, in Europe, or in um, in South Africa, from what you've described. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with that uh, sort of <laughs> difficulty. Uh, yeah, it's you know, it's kind of the definition of my life for the last ten years. So it's. Uh, yeah, it, it is very much that uh, in South Africa. Well, it, you know, they they very much in South Africa. It's very much about helping young filmmakers uh, like myself and various others to develop their films. But the way in which um, they go about offering that support, I feel, is very limited and has actually hampered my own creative process. So um, and various other um, filmmakers, you know, that you speak to who have had the support feel that, whereas that's the other huge difference between um, Germany and South Africa is that that kind of support is not uh, hampered here. So, you know, in Germany, if they were to offer you developmental um, support, it's very open-minded. They really favor the art, the artists and allow the artists to be as, as um, free as they would like. Whereas in South Africa, you know, South Africa's uh, governmental fund has lost so much money with giving the artists <laughs> uh, uh, their own, uh, you know, favor that they've taken a very conservative approach, and what they do is they really um, uh, tailor your development process, and in, in effect, it uh, usurps the um, the the creative voice of the of the filmmaker, mm -hmm. which is in, in fact quite disturbing. So you know, it, it comes back to that: do you do you want their money? <laughs> Right. <laughs> to make your film, or do you want to tell your film like the way you do? And, the, and these are questions that you know are very much in the foreground of my own um, um, my own process. You know? So right now, as I mentioned, I'm in in the development uh, of a feature film, uh, which has a working title, Home Sweet Home, um, which is to be shot in South Africa using just a South African crew and a. Um, um, a South African uh, cast, but it has um, it has a German co-producer and it has a German sales agent, which is an international sales agent. But I do need some support from South Africa. I do need some money from South Africa, and uh, you know, and I would like the recognition from from South Africa. From South Africa. Yeah, but but yeah. but to actually to get that, you know, they like. They basically telling me that I got to rewrite my whole script, and yet my script is really well, you know, approved and loved by various other um, people. <laughs> so they want me to go back and change it so that it fits into some kind of Hollywood uh, um, model. And oh, <laughs> so, so it's it's really interesting. And so I, you know, I've been in a in a struggle um, with that over the last year. And um, and I'm considering giving back the money <laughs> and getting my finance only in Europe for the film that I will shoot only in South Africa. Well, how do you? Well, let's okay. Let's talk. Let's sort of let's sort of take a take a little bit of a left turn here, and let's talk about sort of growing up. Talk about your background. How did you get into? How did you decide that this was going to be for you? How did you decide that? Hey, you know, this is the career path that I want to take, <laughs> you know, how did you, how did you, I mean, it wasn't like you woke up one day when you were, well, maybe you did, maybe you woke up one day when you were 10 and you, you watched a, a Godard film and you were like, hey, I can do this, or maybe it didn't happen that way, but sort of walk us through how did you decide that independent filmmaking was going to be for you? You know, it's actually quite different from most people. Um, so basically, I had no interest in film, and until I was 
about 24. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're you're what they call a late bloomer. <laughs> well, yeah, well, not not even. I I wouldn't even call it that because I had other interests. So basically, what I did is I I I studied law and psychology, and I have a basic degree in, in law and psychology, and then I went on to study philosophy and politics uh, with economics and. Oh, you're like a quadruple threat there, a tetrahedral threat, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so, so I did that in my postgraduate course. But what I was doing throughout the time, well, since I was about 11, was I was acting in theater. And, and I always enjoyed acting in theater. But what happened uh, is that when I moved to Cape Town, so I, I grew up in Peter Maritzburg, which is in KwaZulu-Natal, and uh, in a very uh, closed Indian community, and, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't have really much access to things that were white or black or a platform in which to um, to do what I needed to do. Uh, although when I went to university, I was acting um, and in theater there. And, and then, you know, I had a broader outreach. But when I went to Cape Town, I wanted to, uh, to continue acting in theater because I loved it. But the theater was very closed. It was very, very white and very close. And there was no space for me. And uh, I ended up working as a, uh, well, I continued studying and I worked at a, at a research institute, but in this, you know, in the background, I was, I was, I was wanting to act. And what I did is I worked as a, um, as an interviewer uh, for a parliamentary te- uh, service television. So I interviewed okay. NGO directors and various members of parliament, talking to them about policy, etc. And then, um, and then what I did is I, I got a job as a production assistant. And, you know, I was asking the producers, well, why isn't there anything for me? You know, why isn't there anything for my skin color? And now we're talking about it's changed since then. So we're talking about 1999, um, 1998, 1999, 2000. This was a year where, you know, apartheid was finished. But um, you still, you know, as somebody of my skin color, I in Cape Town, you know, I couldn't get any work at all that was that would put me on the stage or put me in front of the camera. So actually, what was what <laughs> what what one of the filmmakers who I was working for said to me was that look, there's nothing for you. Okay, if you want to be on the screen, then you should write and produce and direct your own stuff, and then you can act in it too. <laughs> Whoa, okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is what what I was told. And at that point, I was like, okay, well then, you know, go to hell. Maybe that's what I'll do. And so I continued to study. I continued to study. I finished my, my postgraduate degree, and then I, you know, I began a master's in rhetoric of film, and I... Um, and I continued to work in the industry because that was, uh, it was, you know, I realized that I could work like, uh, on quite a few productions and earn like a nice chunk of money and then I could continue studying and pay you know for the apartment and the bills and all that and um, and so I continued to do that until I got the opportunity to work as a trainee producer on a film called Forgiveness which uh, had its premiere in Locarno and uh, in I think 2004 and so I got to work as a as a trainee producer there and they completely exploited me. They, 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 they just, <laughs> They're like, look at this sucker. She thinks she knows about the law and psychology and economics. We're going to show her. <laughs> yeah, it, it was awful. Like, it, was, it was really a lot of that kind of attitude, uh, you know, because it, it's, it's very rough, the industry, you know, this very military style and very rough. And they have no appreciation for anyone who has any intellectual ideas. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you, you know, you you got to go through the fire, right? I mean, you do. You got to walk through the fire to come out the other side, you know. So. And that's what I did. That's what I did. So I actually worked on that, and I really enjoyed it. And then it just so happened that the following year, I started getting a lot of um, a lot of um, opportunities to be a producer uh, with international co-productions, like with Canada, with India, with Germany, with Italy. And so that's when I set up Charlie Films uh, as a vehicle. Uh, through which to run the, these productions and uh, to be able to access funds in South Africa and to you know to pay the taxes and all that. So this is how I I, I started uh, Charlie Films, and and then I continued for at least five or six years to work as a as a co-producer and in international productions and um, and. Uh, um, you know, and basically offer my my input in terms of the script development and uh, etc. But 
actually, you know, the sad story with that is that I, n- I was never really able to produce any of those films in South Africa because I never got funding for any of those films um, in South Africa. So, you know, I fell off as a South African producer because I couldn't bring funds to the to the to the of the process but I did work on them on a developmental capacity so that was really um, that helped me grow as well right well you, you talked about sort of being 10 years away from apartheid and uh, the apartheid system and in from the perspective of and I'm, I'm I don't want you to tell how old you are but I'm 35 this year and so in 1999 I was like two years out of high school and so for me um, in America, growing up in America and in an American context, um, and at the time I went to high school in the American South, and so I, it, it, while it wasn't an apartheid system, it was a post-Jim Crow still in the late 90s, a post-Jim Crow system um, down south in Louisiana. And, and yeah, my apologies to everybody who's going to be listening to this who knew me when I lived in Louisiana, but I mean, that's sort of the reality of the American South. Now, there's an arc where certain areas of the American South are coming out of that, but it's it's happening slowly. You know, they're still fighting the Civil War down there in some parts, though, <laughs> you know. Um, but talk to me about sort of being 10 years away from the apartheid system. I mean, that was a brutal system. And what we saw in America, or at least what I saw on the media and on television as a, as a child growing up, was sort of the brutality of that, and then the system collapsed, and then there was Nelson Mandela. And those are the only two sort of poles we have in this country. And I like how you talk about sort of growing up in that closed Indian community. Um, And I knew there was an Indian community based upon the life of Gandhi and all that. But, you know, after Gandhi leaves and you only find out about Gandhi in India, you don't really find out anymore about Gandhi in South Africa. And so or the people that he left behind. Um, and so we didn't really hear a whole lot about the Indian South African experience in relation to the crumbling sort of, of that apartheid system. Um, you lived through that, or you grew up through that, I, I would assume anyway, and if I'm wrong, let me know. But, uh, you know, you grew up through that and lived through that and, and have to have had to endure through that in your filmmaking process. What was that like for you? Okay, so um, so apartheid ended in 1994, and so we're 20 years away from apartheid now. Okay, um, so, so. But um, and yes, I I um, I grew up in apartheid South Africa. You know, I lived. Um, I so I'm 37 now, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I was still uh, I was in my final year of high school when uh, when uh, when the first uh, democratic election was uh, took place in South Africa and uh, I was too young to vote I was 17 so I, was, I wasn't able to vote but uh, so so basically you know um, it was um, I, I lived a fairly sheltered life and I think that was what apartheid is really about it's, a, it's really about sheltering you know the white and the Indian and the colored uh, so-called colored community in South Africa and 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 keeping everyone away you know keeping the black people in in, in an enclave and and keeping everyone else uh, in different enclaves and so you know if there's one word that really describes it it's sheltered and that's what and that's how I grew up in a in a very sheltered way and also living in an Indian, Indian community which was really in, interested in in prolonging the traditions and the cultural and they really hung on very tightly to that. So I grew up in in this kind of orthodox Hindu family with, uh, you know, with this Indian tradition. And and my life was was very different until I started university. My first year of university was the only time I got to be around people of color, uh, whether they be white or or mixed race or or black. And uh, other than that, I went to an Indian school and uh, was at home with my family and. Uh, and the the community that we lived in just we're with you you know it's apartheid so it was like just Indian people and uh, so it you know that was like I don't know it was it, the kind of goals and values uh, that people have really shape you as you're growing up so in, in that kind of community it was really important for people to uh, to be um, you know to grow up to have some kind of status like so to be like a lawyer or a doctor. Or some uh, having some kind of status like this was important, and those are the kind of things that that you know your parents um, um, would would have wanted you to do, and and so doing something like filmmaking was so far off. You know, there was something. Firstly, the government during a party was in complete control of the media. Everything was white and Afrikaner. You know, there was no like there was no even access point. I didn't even dream about working in television when I was a teenager. Um, 
and and perhaps on some level that's quite short-sighted but i i didn't uh, i never imagined it and um and then um it, yeah i mean things obviously changed but they changed very slowly like so in in cape town there is still until this day a struggle between the the people of color and the white community which dominate the film industry I mean, they are constantly people complaining about it, um, and um, and there's. But do you yeah? do you find being do you find being as an Indian raised in that closed community, um, <clears throat> do you find you have a voice at the table in those kinds of discussions, or or does the filmmaking sort of carve out that voice for you? You know, it's it's it's. It, I wish that the filmmaking would carve out that voice uh, for me, and I, I that that's what my wish is, but it isn't. Because, you know, you've got to jump through all these hurdles about financing your film. And then you've got to jump through all those political hurdles, too. And it's a racist, you know. I mean, I, uh-huh. I, um, I, I so, I'm suppo- supposedly now privileged because I'm a black, so-called black female filmmaker. And I would have lots of opportunities. But it, in reality, it isn't like that because there's a lot of an- antagonism towards me because I'm Indian and I'm not Zulu or Sotho or something. And, you know, there's a lot of that. So I wouldn't say um, that it ultimately, um, you know, I think if I just took my phone and I shot some some movies on that, uh, then I would be an empowered filmmaker. <laughs> you just loaded it up to YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Really. <laughs> you, know. you know, then I would be, I would have my voice out there, but I'm too much of a perfectionist to do that. Uh, so I don't do it. But but I think that is far more empowering than, than doing what I'm doing, you know, because what I'm trying to do is go through the system, work through the system, which is in fact, you know, built to oppress and uh, and get through that and, and to be able to tell um, my stories. But yes, I don't think I completely answered your previous question, so... Well, no, I mean, I think you did a really good job because I was sort of getting, sort of getting to the. Uh, I find it interesting in multi-ethnic countries like America or like South Africa um, or like Brazil or or any you know, any multi-ethnic country in the world where there's polarities and there's sort of these artificial polarities, but in reality there's there's multiple polarities, you know, and there's multiple voices that need to be heard at the table. And because as a conflict resolution guy, um, I run into so many people that want it to be, you know, for, for the purposes of this interview, this is going to sound trite, but they want it to be either black or white. You know, they're not interested in hearing multi-polarities because they're not interested in all the grays that go along with that. I'm fascinated by the grays that go along with that and by the voices that are heard and the voices that aren't heard. Um, and how do we get all those voices to the table? And so, you know, I see filmmaking as a way to, to sort of get those voices heard. And, you know, I, I want to take the time to sort of encourage you, because, you know, going through the system, you are breaking down those barriers and you are getting that voice at the table, even if you, at least I believe you are, even if you don't get success boom right off the right off the right off the bat there um i think it's a gradual process and that's the infinite the easy work would be to film it on your phone and upload it to youtube and (laughs) you'll sort of have it go viral and all that kind of stuff the hard work is working through the system and, and sort of chipping away at those chipping away at those edifices that have been built over time and proving to people that even though she failed at this thing she's not she's still going to be persevering in this other area so yeah, I think you're to be commended for that. Yeah, but but that also you know begs the question: Have we is is the the old system outdated? Is it time just to go with YouTube, uh, Vimeo, Vivo? And sure, <laughs> should we not just embrace these media <laughs> and go with it? Um, well, let's talk about let's talk about now. We're kind of a little bit off the off of the, off of our question list here, but let's talk about the new media. What do you what do you like out there? What do you, do you like Vimeo and and YouTube? Do you like sort of the new things that independent filmmakers are sort of doing, where they're taking these new tools, and some of them are pro social tools, some of them aren't, but they're taking these tools and they're doing either really really funny things or really really compelling things um and they're sort of putting it out there for free to the world what do you think about that well, both from a producer hat and from a consulting hat like what do you think about that i think it's 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 great it's my daily consumption uh, i mm. love it you know i'm i'm living upon it you know 5 years ago i i was living a, a different life i was walking out <laughs> in the forest <laughs> 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 
my time, you know, online on on, on YouTube, Vimeo, etc. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's 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 really amazing and it's really great. And the more people could get out and and tell, you know, speak their vo- voices. Uh, get their voices heard the more the better it, it is because i think like one of the major problems in our society today is that there's still so much of levels of oppression uh going on you know whether it is your veiled woman in saudi arabia or or whether it's um you know your um your your young indian woman in india who's forced to marry uh or whether it's just you know whatever it is, it's not just about women and in, in Eastern countries. Or it's it's those levels of oppression that exist everywhere. And I think that ultimately, what Vimeo and and YouTube and all these other mobile sites actually offer people—not just mobile sites, but um, these sites that offer online you know videos—I think mm-hmm. what it offers is people to heal. It's right. to reach out to each other with their experiences and to heal. And the, and we, just to realize that, in fact, you're not alone. You're not the only one going through that. You're not um, the only one dealing, dealing with that, you know, because, uh, yes, you could get that information in books, but I think it's far more difficult. You know, the, your videos are instantaneous and you and you can reach out to somebody across the world who's having the same existential crisis that you are having. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then, you, but then again, you could also you could also reach across the world and see a cat video twelve thousand times. If you if that's what you choose, you know. <laughs> you know. Well, and how do you? One of the things that I struggle with as a person who produces content um, on on digital platforms through through blogging and then you know through this podcast and eventually I'll go to video as well. But one of the things I struggle with is how do I cut through the noise of the cat videos and of the sort of the clickbait on Facebook, you know, that shows up in your feed. Like, click on this video and it'll save your life. It'll change your life in 30 seconds. You won't believe what – I mean, like, give me a break, you know. And then I click on the video and it's not something that's going to change my life, <laughs> you know. And I, I sort of struggle with how do you – how do you cut through the noise to tell that significant story that's going to that's going to cause that unity to to a, to occur that's going to cause those people to to sort of join together i don't i don't know how to do that maybe maybe you could tell me you know i don't know you know son if i knew that um answer <laughs> i i think i would i would have figured it all out actually but but i think that one of the things that i've recently discovered is um you know you got to know what you want Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to know what you're looking for. I think as somebody who's putting out the content, it's more difficult. But as a consumer, if you know what you want, then you can cut through all the noise. You go directly to what you want. And um, so it's more about people. I think it's more about people making choices which are, which are better for them and, and which, you know, which, um, which help them, um, which, which is just generally better for them as opposed to um, dumbing down. Them, you know, and right. So, so I'll give you an example. Like in the in the recent uh, months, I've really taken to uh, watching a lot of uh, videos online um, uh, that that uh, give you like monthly horoscope and your monthly uh, tarot, oh, yeah. etc. So, like I, I, I've um, I've always had an interest in in tarot and in astrology. In fact, I am a, a tarot reader and I do that uh, professionally on the mm. side. And um, so I've always had an interest in astrology. And so what I did is I decided I was going to spend like a fair deal of time uh, watching the various uh, astrology scopes that are put out by various different people and do a comparison of them and and see you know what they say. And I've also then learned a lot about about astrology uh, in in the meantime. But um, what I found is that these people, they all have their niche audiences. You know, like one person has like 13,000 subscribers. Another one maybe has 3,000 subscribers. But they have their audiences. So, like, the audiences exist out there. It's just about you putting out what you need to put out in a very clear, concise way um, to reach a very niche audience. And then your audience will come to you. Because people are more and more people are figuring out exactly what they want. And, and they're going for it as opposed to, you know, just trying to, like, you know, just play games or whatever. 
Right. Well, and you know what? As a person who creates content, and I talk to a lot of other people who create content, and you know this as a person who creates and produces content, you know, the frustration is how do I get this content to the right audience? How do I get this content to those 13,000 people? And where are those 13,000 people? And how can I get them out of the millions of people that are also producing, well, not millions maybe, but the other, you know, hundreds of, of thousands of people or even just tens of thousands of people who are also producing this content? Uh, but as a consumer, you're right. On the flip side, you're absolutely right. Um, and I see it from both sides. That's, that's my mediator brain. You know, I see it from both sides. So as a consumer of content, you're right. I know exactly what I, I know not to click on the video in my Facebook feed. Like, I know not to do that, <laughs> you know. And I know I'm savvy enough to know if I want to go on YouTube, uh, like I'm working on a project right now, um, looking at a bunch of how-to videos for building webinars and things like that in sort of a really – kind of offbeat way. And so I'm looking at <clears throat> how to build these webinars in this offbeat way from other people who are doing it. And you're right. I, I see that they've got, you know, 300,000, well, not even 300,000, but like 30,000 likes or 13,000 likes or 3,000 likes or, you know, whatever it is on YouTube. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this video and I'm replaying it over and over. And I'm thinking, you know, how do we, how did this person really grab that audience so I'm thinking about that from the marketing perspective and from the content creator perspective, but then I'm also thinking, hey, you know, I'm part of this audience now. I really appreciate what this person's doing, and it's having those two minds that's sort of sort of driving driving me right now. So you're right about niche audiences. Well, talk to me about how your films fit into what is the niche audience that you're looking for, and then also talk to me about who your mentors are. You know, those are two different questions, but who are some of your mentors that sort of helped you come up, or did you just sort of sort of do this automatically? organically you sort of just take the reins of this and wrangle it yourself um okay so the mentor question you know i've never the word mentor has never really been part of my vocabulary um i i don't have mentors i have people who have inspired me i've had uh circumstances that have inspired me so one of the things that i mentioned to you earlier when when the, this um uh, a woman uh, who I was working for at the time had said to me that you know if you want to if you want to be on your on screen if you want to be cast in a role on screen then go write and direct and produce your own stuff like that was that's some that's something that inspired me you know it made me want to go out there and and get it I wouldn't call her um, my mentor uh, but but then I can't I uh, proceeded to have a, a work relationship with them in which I um, I brought finance to one of their projects uh, called 34 South is the name of the film. It was, in fact, at the Pan-African Film Festival in, in L.A. And um, and then I got uh, totally screwed over by them financially. And, and so, you know, this is, these are things that uh, I've been I've learned from. And I and I guess, you know, I've I've been inspired by it. I've been inspired to do def to do better, to do differently, to to, you know, not not to make the same mistakes. And then um I think if I've had one mentor um, or one person that's truly inspired me, because, uh, you know, like um, having a mentor, somebody who's, you know, you kind of really follow, follow them. I think you really uh, love them, them and their work. But, you know, I, I don't have that relationship with anyone in the world. Uh, but I do think that Carl um, um, Baumgartner, who's recently passed away, uh, he was one of the co-producers in my film, Minesh, and he was one of the, uh, you know, he was a producer of Aki Karasmaki and Jim Jarmusch and Jane Campion. And, you know, he supported a lot of indie, independent film. And um, he he was like a, a, a really strong voice for independent cinema in Europe and, and also independent cinema coming out from obscure corners of the world. And he really supported people like Pan Nalin with uh, with his film Samsara, and um, and he supported me. And I think that that if there's anyone who's truly inspired me in terms of the type of work that I do, the type of cinema that I'm engaged in, um, it's it's Karl Baumgartner, and he was known as Baumi. Oh. And um, yeah, it's it's really his his death has really been a loss to us all. And uh, but um, yeah, so. And, uh, and generally, I'm quite inspired by by various other directors. So, you know, like yesterday, I met with a uh, a producer, Sanjay Shah, uh, from India. Uh, he lives between India and, and Australia. And, and I recently came across a film that he he's uh, one of the producers on called Labor of Love. 
which is mm-hmm. in the Venice days, the CEO at Venice, and I uh, was in the process of trying to do the gap financing for it because it has a shortfall. And um, if I did, I would have been also one of the co-producers on it. And uh, But I, I, I wasn't able to do that. And I'm still in the process of trying to find uh, the project, a sales agent, as well as um, as a distribution. And like just, just speaking to him was an inspiration, you know, because we're on the same page and there's somebody out there who's trying to do something that I'm trying to do. And that's really nice. And just like watching the film, Labor of Love, and looking, and I really enjoyed this film and, and seeing how it was made, etc. So these are, they're like little things that inspire me, you know. Like Lars von Trier is somebody who's always inspired me. And uh, he was also... Really? Yeah. He, he's, I, have not, I have not seen Nymphomaniac yet, by the way. I... I... I'm sort of hesitant to sort of watch it. I had to, I had to get through melancholia first, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, had to, I had to slog through that first, and I'm sort of hesitant. Like my, my my wife doesn't particularly care for for things like that or for subject matter like that, so I have to be sort of. And I got I got a little kids, so I got to sort of like navigate around that entire thing. I got to figure out times to schedule the next Lars von Trier film, but <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's like five hours out of your time. I also have not watched right. Nymphomaniac as yet, but um, for instance, I um, Lars von Trier's company is Entropa uh, Entertainment. Is actually one of the co-producers of my short film as well, and um, they uh, well, um, you know, his work I've never necessarily liked, but it's really been. You know, it's something that I've thought about for a long, long time. You know, I could, after I watched Antichrist, I thought about it for about two and a half years. Uh, wow. And so yeah. if you think, you, you know, if, I wouldn't, so I wouldn't call him my mentor in any way, but I would say that his work inspired me to think about it at such a level. There's another um, um, director, um, the, he made this this film called Aurora. It was in the, uh, in Cannes, in um I think I don't remember the year, maybe 2010 or 2009. Um, and uh, goodness, he's um, not Hungarian. Jeez, uh, like, um, <laughs> sorry, I forgot. It's okay. Yeah. We'll look. We'll look it up afterward. We'll, we'll get it. <laughs> we'll bring it in. <laughs> okay. Well, what I wanted to say about it, the film. Okay, I hated it when I watched it. So I watched it in Cannes. I hated it. I knew the well, co-producers of it, and uh, uh, it was, um, you know, it was, it was. I really hated this film. But you know what? I it inspired me so intensely that I, uh, I wrote a, a manuscript based on it. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's um, it's basically it's it's yeah. So this is what I what I mean. And the, the, yeah, yeah. This is what I. Mean. No, that's that's good. No, I mean, well, and and then the next question I had, which or the question I had before that about mentorship was niche audiences. You know, yes. um, which goes sort of to authenticity. You know, you have a very you're a deep well. Shalin, and, and you've got a lot of stuff inside of that well. A lot of life experiences, a lot of perspectives. How do you? find that niche and remain authentic not only to the brand but also to your film and to your your subject matter how do you how do you do that how do you find your niche audience and remain authentic um i think that authenticity isn't something that really that you can do i think it you either have it or you don't you know and i think part of being authentic or having my authenticity come through in my work is 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 really uh, constantly questioning myself and asking myself about my path and and asking myself if i'm being honest with myself and i think you know if i if i can be be clear and in integrity with myself, then that will come through in my work. I don't think it's something that you can control. I don't think it's something you can brand. I don't think it's it's something that you can, you know, you can plan. I think it's either it comes through or not. And um, um, yeah, just in terms of finding my niche audience, you know, I have no idea. Um, this is like a blank spot for me. Um, I just... Um, or a blind, blind spot, sorry. That's what it is for me. Because I, I, that's just an area of my work that I haven't been able to figure out. Like, you know, that's the first question people ask you when you pitch a project. Like, who is your audience? And right. me is like, my audience is uh, are the people who like my work, my films. Because <laughs> you know, I'm not making genre films. I'm not making horror films. Right. Okay, I have, you know, the whole horror audience in the world. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My, my niche audience is 
female South Africans, 37 years old, of Indian descent. That's my audience. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like I, 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 yeah, I'm making a film about a pedophile. Yeah, my audience is a bunch of pedophiles because I want to get them to change their mind. You know, right. You know, like what? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how to answer it. And I constantly am asked that. I still don't know how to answer it. And I wish that I had, um, I wish I could afford a marketing uh, consultant or some somebody who could advise me about how to build my, my audience and how to reach my audience but this is as i said my blind spot yeah well you know i could i could probably help you out with that i know a ton of marketing people um internationally um that are doing they're doing really really good work i could probably connect you with a, with at least a couple of people but um i don't know one of the things that uh, see i i do a, a, i do consulting as part of my as part of my business model as well and um one of the things i'm consistently asked is you know who's your audience who's your audience who's your audience who's your audience who who Who's your market? Who's your target market? And during, particularly during the first year of my business last year, that was the drumbeat question. And I got so frustrated with that question, um, I started just saying, "You're my, you're my, the person who I'm talking to is my audience. <laughs> like that's that's my audience. <laughs> you know, you, I'm talking to you right now about this project or about this idea or about this this resolution to a conflict. You're my audience right now. Um, now it's your job to go out and find me." other people. <laughs> so go forth and do that. You know, <laughs> sort of, it sort of be like that because yeah, yeah, I do. I agree. It's, it's, if you're making unconventional things and you're trying to find like, I don't know if you, if you know who Seth Godin is, um, the marketer, if you're yeah. familiar with any of his writing. Okay. So yeah, he talks about, you know, the long tail, right? So finding the people on the long tail that are going to like your stuff and pay you for it, you know, and as the, as the long tail becomes longer and longer, the second piece of the hard work, other than just sort of walking through the edifice that's already been built up and trying to tear that down, the second piece becomes trying to find who is on that long tail that's gonna that's gonna give you money and give you not only a referral and continue to give you business, but also give you attention. You know. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, okay. So basically, I think that the whole world is our audiences, right? We we create right. stuff to to put it out there for everyone to appreciate, and so. You know, I think that that you, what you, your response is really is really um, apt in in that respect. And um, you know, I think what I ought to do is probably spend more time re- reading some of, uh, of um, Seth Gordon's um, Seth Gordon's uh, work. You know, in order to be able to get some ideas of. <laughs> well, Mitch Joel put some good things out there. I'll give a, give him a plug. He put some good things out there. He's Canadian, so you know it's not all all an American thing. You know, Mitch Joel put some good things out there. Um, he's doing some good work. Um, so you know, I mean, it's you're right. The whole world is our audience, and and we have the tools now for the whole world to to sort of become our audience. Um, well, we've we've had a really good conversation here. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, let's sort of wrap this up by talking about sort of. What are and you've talked about differences. You've talked a lot about sort of what the differences are between filmmaking in the Anglophile world versus filmmaking everywhere else, um, and you've you've touched on that. Um, is there anything you'd like to go deeper into that? Because you said you were working with uh, with a, a young man from uh, or, or a person from Australia, and you know, so now you got Australia, you got Germany, and, and the rest of Europe, you got South Africa. That's a lot of different places. Um, how do you how do you leverage all that you know with the differences in filmmaking or is there some or is there one commonality between all of them like getting the financing and getting the funding is that the one commonality and then everything else is just sort of cultural and political? Um, yeah, there's two parts to that question. So basically, I, I find partners who are able to find help me bring a certain portion of finance into a project and and but. Um, I think just finding people who are like-minded or on the same page with one uh, from a uh, from an artistic point of view, or just you know to be able to who appreciate cinema in a certain type of way, that are willing to put a product out there that is not just about uh, making money or or entertainment, but just like you know the art form. Uh, like so, so for me that's my common thing. I will like you know I, I try to look for people who really appreciate my my point of view or people who have no interest in my point of view but who have um, like access to funds and who won't bother my, me uh, or won't um, not bother me but will just allow me um, free reign in terms of the artistic stuff um, right but you know, yeah, give me give me the money and leave me alone <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean that's, that's ideal isn't it yeah. yeah yeah okay well how do you um, 
well, what are some what are some of your 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 favorite like contemporary filmmakers? You know, you mentioned being on YouTube and being on Vimeo and sort of sucking all that all that stuff up. Who are some of your favorite filmmakers working right now that are sort of outside the maybe outside the social space who sort of made that leap to quote unquote the big screen? You know, who are who are some of your favorite filmmakers that are uh, that are working right now? Um. That was, or do you have any? I mean, you know, or it's fine to say, yeah, no, you know what? Uh, no, <laughs> but I mean, who are, you, who are you inspired by? I mean, you mentioned Lars von Trier, and that's that's definitely um, that's definitely an influence there. I can see, like you said, whether positive or negative. Um, the person who directed um, Aurora, that was uh, Christy Pugh. That's exactly Pugh. Yeah, Yep. So um, I found his name later. So I like um, I, lo- I love the work of Bellatar. Okay. Bellatar, he's a Hungarian. Uh, uh, Christy Pugh is Romanian. Uh, yep. Bellata is a is a Hungarian uh, director. His work is, uh, I think, really beautiful and amazing. I like um, the work of a uh, Turkish director whose name escapes me now, but he made a film called Honey. He made like mm-hmm. a trilogy: uh, Honey, uh, Milk, I think, and uh, I'm not sure the other one. Um, Baal is the Turkish name for it. I can't remember his name, but I've met him several times. Um, I, I just uh, quickly Google it. Um, it he's had his it, actually his film um, uh, Semi Kapla uh, Nuglu. That's his name. His film Baal won the Berlinale Bear in 2010. And uh, so I like I like his work. Um, I like um, uh, yeah. I, I I don't have like a really favorite. Um, Filmmaker whose work I'm like looking out for right now. I try to keep uh, an eye out for uh, what's what's coming up. So I'm really keen to see uh, Fatih Akin's new film, The Cut in Venice, and uh, yep. and I want to see what that's about. And um, yeah, I, mean, I I don't have that uh, many um, favorites. I'm just I'm just more you know I keep an eye out about what's going on. And uh, if I really like a film. I maybe tweet about it or, or I write about it. Ah, there was a film I watched last year in Venice. It was called, jeez, uh, what is it called? It was called Lock. They've so. Oh yeah. Yeah, they've since changed the uh, title of the film. That was a brilliant, brilliant film, and I loved. I mean, I would love to see the work of the next director. Uh, his name escapes me. Uh, Tom, no, Tom Hardy acted in it. And yeah, it was Stephen Knight. Steve, that's it. Right, thank you. And he's worked, and you know, he's made other stuff, but uh, Stephen Knight. Uh, but but this film was really, really good. And um, yeah. And I really, I really, really like Tom Hardy too. I, I just, I got to admit that I really do. I think um, he's. I watched. Uh, oh gosh, what was the one about? What was the movie about? The uh, the guy in uh, the gentleman in British prison. Um, oh. Uh, I just I just watched it like maybe six eight months ago. Anyway, he was he was huge in that. So I really I really loved the way he sort of. And then of course you know, The Dark Knight you know and or Dark Dark Knight Rises or whatever it was you know with uh, with uh, you know um, Nolan um, who I love I do I love Christopher Nolan and I think he's he's an anachronism in an age of digital where he just continues to shoot on film you know. Um, and sort of, sort of shaking his fist at everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I I I wanted to see Locke. I definitely, yeah. I, like I said, I like Tom Hardy and, and Stephen Knight. Looked like he was doing some really amazing things in that film. You really ought to see it and and get it out there. It was like it's really one really brilliant film. It's um, um, I I don't I haven't seen. Uh, like films that should really move me, and you know the thing is that I I used to I was never really one uh, who who I was really never really a cine, cinephile, but you know over the years I've I've, uh, I've grown to have a, a real appreciation for films, and so now I try to watch uh, really good ones. But I found in the last year, um, well the last couple of years, you know having a child and having to um, when I'm go when I go to film festivals like Cannes or Venice or to the Berlinale, I you know I, I I have a babysitter taking care of my child when I'm at the when I'm at my meetings and then I try I tend to skip films rather than watch it because I want to spend a bit of time with my daughter you know and not just like be you know gone for twelve hours in the day and so yeah. this is uh, unfortunately in the last uh, couple of years I haven't watched as many films as I, as I would like to the film uh, Lunchbox by Ritesh Batra. Yep. Is also a film that's um, that's okay. 
That's uh, not a film to be passed. And um, yeah, but um, I think that basically rounds it up in terms of uh, my uh, my. my <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but last um, what uh, not last one here like last one here as I said I like I have a love hate relationships with these films. Uh, the one film which I really loved. Um, of Lars von Trier's one of his earliest films. Uh, damn, you know, I have a real problem remembering names of, of, of films or people. Uh, so it was um, one of his earlier films. It had uh, this act. It wasn't. It wasn't like the element of crime or, you know, like something like that. It wasn't. Any, it wasn't that early. Uh, no, it was. It was a. I think for the eighties. I can just. Um, do you have um, a list of his films in front of you? Oh yeah, I mean we got. Let's see, his his films from the 1980s. Um, Bifrasabilder. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm, I just butchered that because I don't speak German. But the element of crime, um, epidemic, um, and then uh, Medea, which was a TV movie. Yeah, it's uh, not that. Although that was yeah. pretty good as well. This was um, well, Down from the Dark. Uh, oh yeah. Yep. Europa. Um, which was in 1991, The Teacher's Room, which was a TV series that he put together, um, Breaking Breaking the Waves. Yeah, Breaking uh, the Waves was one of these other ones. But one, this, it's not any of these films. It's another one. It's got, um, and the reason I want to, it's like a film that so intensely um, inspired me. Um, geez, still can't find it. It's like set, it's like a, a theater, a theater space that it's set in and it's, uh, it's acted out in there. It's got this, uh, the actor in it, his name is uh, Paul, Paul something, which is a hell guy. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> sorry. Uh, Dogville, Dog. Dogville, Dogville. Okay, yeah. Dogville is like one of my, of course, Nicole Kidman. So Dogville is one of my favorite films, you know, and it's, it's, uh, and yet I don't remember it. It's awful, but it's, it's, but it's one of my favorite films, and one of the films that's truly inspired me. So, um, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, just generally speaking, I enjoy the films of Aki Karasmaki and um, um, Abbas Karastami as well. Yeah. Well, um, wrapping up here, uh, you, you mentioned the going working the film circuit. Uh, we didn't really touch on that. Um, if we have you back again, I'd love to talk about, you know, sort of working the film circuit and what that's like, you know, Venice and Cannes and, and sort of that that whole culture. Um, and how do you work the film circuit? Um, is that something that I'm fascinated by? And we we didn't mention this, but I'd like to give you a couple of minutes here at the end to sort of talk about how do you balance. Um, and you're a very ambitious woman. You got a lot of a lot of goals. How do you balance that um, with? And I ask every entrepreneur this, not just women. So this is sort of a universal question. But how do you balance that with just life, just living life? I know you said you're into tarot, tarot and astrology and things like that. How do you get hobbies and life and other stuff? And balance that with your work. Yeah, um, I think to a large extent, it's not been very balanced in the last years. So I spent a lot of time. Like, if you if you want to make headway, uh, you really got to spend like a lot of time working. And 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 unfortunately, you know, well, not no, fortunately, I think that life is more important than than work. Uh, so I, I I spend a great deal of time relaxing and, and enjoying the time that I have with my family as well. So that is, um, that you know, that's where my balance comes in. Is that you know, I spend a, my family life is what is what grounds me and brings me, um, uh, you know, to, back into focus about what's really important in life. And then, uh, but I do spend like a lot of my free time just like studying tarot and studying Norse mythology and Indian mythology and uh, studying. Um, uh, well, reading Noam Chomsky. <laughs> so, you know, I have other interests and I spend a lot of my spare time reading uh, uh, up on that. And, um, and yeah, you know, I try to, I love hiking. Um, so when I get a chance to do that, I, I love to do that. Uh, my daughter's still very young now and I can't get her to march up a mountain. But when she, but give it a couple more years. And she, give it a couple more years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and otherwise, uh, one of my passions is sailing. Uh, but where I'm living at right now, I don't get to do very, very much of that. But uh, I'm moving back to Cape Town in a month from now, and I'm hoping to to have a bit more time and balance in my life with more hiking and more sailing, and uh, and um, yeah, and that that's awesome. pretty much that. Uh, and then, uh, what was the question that you asked me? Uh, oh, yeah, you were mentioning well, about the festival circuit. Yeah, the festival circuit, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's you know, a really sort of long and involved 
I would imagine, a long and involved answer, you know, because there's a lot of, I would assume there's differences in, in just navigating Venice versus Cannes and, and all those. Yeah, there is. Um, yeah, there, there are huge differences in navigating them. And, uh, you know, being in a festival is really essential, I think, for an independent filmmaker to be able to find the right people to be able to engage with and begin co-productions with and to be able to familiar, familiarize yourself with who the finances are and what the latest trends are, etc. And that is really a, a, a huge involved discussion. We can do that another time if, you, if you'd like that. Absolutely. I would love to continue talking with you. Well, let's wrap up for today. Um, thank you very much, Shalin, for taking time to talk with us today here on Earbud U. You can follow us on Earbud U at, on Twitter at Earbud U, okay, uh, twitter.com. Um, you can also take a look at us on Instagram. You, we do take Instagram photos and we put them up all over the place, um, underscore Earbud U on Instagram. We also um, have our website for our parent company, HS Consulting and Training. So www.hsconsultingandtraining.com. And of course, check out HS Consulting and Training's website, Human Services Consulting and Training, on Facebook. Uh, thank you very much, Shalin, for taking the time to talk with us again. We had a great time talking with you. And, uh, I've also enjoyed talking with you, too. <laughs> absolutely. Awesome. And uh, you all have a great day.